0: Hello, I'm Bridget Harvey and I'd like to welcome you to Getting Making, a podcast exploring how we make things, collect them, live with them, work with them and care for them. Mariah Nielsen's background as an architect has informed her work as a curator and design historian. Um, She worked as curator at the Museum of Craft and Design in San Francisco and as director of the J.B. Blunk Residency from 2007 to 2011. In 2013, she completed an MA in Design History at the Royal College of Art and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And she co-founded the design brand uh, Permanent Collection. But I'm really interested to speak with her today about how she now cares for and stewards her father's work and legacy and house in her role as director of the J.B. Blunk Estate and the Blunk Space. So um, welcome, Mariah, and thanks for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you care for? So your father's work and family home and the legacy that they
1: embody. Well, I care for my father's legacy in the broadest and also most specific sense. So I manage the home that he built by hand in the 1950s using all salvage material, which is truly his his masterpiece. It's a living artwork. Yeah, I manage his archive, uh, the permanent collection, publications, exhibitions about his work, press, visits to the home and studio. And now I also run a gallery dedicated to his work and the work by historical and contemporary artists and designers with links to his practice.
0: Amazing. So um, do you invite people to make work in response to it or do you
1: um, Mm -hmm. seek out people who are already responding to him? Yeah, we have done that um, in the past. As you mentioned, there was an artist residency here in the home that I ran in collaboration with the nonprofit, the Lucid Art Foundation from 2007 to 2011 and we invited anywhere between four to eight people, um, artists or designers per year to live and work in the home and studio for two months at a time. And there was an application process. And so of course we would, there was a selection committee, we would review the work and then select um, artists and designers that had a a very strong, interesting, provocative link to JB's work. Mm. Um, Ideally, there was an interesting proposal in place of work that they would make on site that would respond to this place in a very direct way.
0: Lovely. And so his workshops or his workspaces are still there on the estate. So he, he worked in ceramics with wood. Um, Did he work with metal at all?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Small so scale, art, right? Yeah, his art practice started in uh, the 1940s, late 1940s. He studied ceramics at UCLA and then was drafted into the Korean War after graduating in 1950. And while he was in Japan, he actually saw that as an opportunity to try to meet the potter Shoji Hamada, whose work he had discovered while a student, and he had had an immediate connection and response to the material. So whenever he was in Japan doing trainings, he would go off base with the military jeep and full uniform and drive around, most often Tokyo, looking for minge shops that would perhaps have Shoji Hamada's work. And during one of these excursions, he met Shirley Yamaguchi, who is Isamo mm-hmm. Noguchi's wife in one of these Minge shops. And she was so struck that there was a soldier in full uniform in this Minge shop that she struck up a conversation with him. She spoke English. Um, She uh, said to my father, you must come back to my place and meet my husband Isamu. I think you would like each other. And so that was how he met Isamu Noguchi. The two of them became very close friends. And then Isamu helped my father be discharged from the army and arrange the first apprenticeship that really set the course for my father's practice. So JB lived and worked in Japan from basically 1950 to 54. And his first apprenticeship was with Rosanjin Kitaoji. And his second apprenticeship was with another master potter, Toyo Kanashige. And JB completely immersed himself in the Japanese culture and place. Uh, He learned how to speak the language. He was a true part of, of specifically Toyo's family. And then when he returned to California, He got a job at an experimental art school called Palos Verdes, which ran for, I think, only about six or seven years um, in L.A. Mm. And he was the artist in residence there and I think also taught ceramics. While he was in Japan, he also started painting. So his art practice already became um, a sort of multifaceted um, practice. So in Japan, he was making ceramics, he was painting. And then at Palos Verdes, he also began making jewelry. Mm. So that, uh, that, that openness, uh, to, and, and really curiosity, um, about different materials and different modes of making started very, very early on for him. And then it wasn't until the 1960s, I'd say about 1962, that he started working with wood and that type of work and his work specifically with the chainsaw really set, uh, or rather cemented his reputation as this master woodworker.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, I guess working across those different scales, uh, you know, from jewellery to his smaller scale sculptures, big scale sculptures, and then the house, you know, it's, it's diverse in material and diverse in um, I guess like vision for how things are going to pan out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So then materially, I guess, you know there's there's they're very different materials and and there's different kind of demands on them um on the artifacts and um and also on the house so how do you look after them now how do you care for them now do you uh, let them age naturally or um you know and how do you def- sort of defend them I guess against like the wildfires that you guys have been experiencing um, and those uh you know bugs and those kind of natural threats
1: it's it's a lot of work and it's endless work it will definitely oh, yeah. be my life work to to preserve this place um and when I say this place I mean the home and I'm, I'm sitting here in the home right now and what's really I would say an important part of this place is that it's a it's a living artwork yes I'm kind of living in this home with my family uh there are artists working in the studio friends of ours who come to visit or artists who are exhibiting at our gallery Blunk Space and Point Reyes Station so there's always activity uh, yeah. in the home um, but that's also an important part of sustaining this place because this home is hand built. It's made of salvage wood and we're in the woods, truly surrounded by woods and we're very close to the ocean. So if you don't live in a house like this and build fires yeah. and keep it warm and keep the mice away, it will eventually go back into the yes. place it came from. It will, go it back will crumble. It. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
1: So, so being here, I think is an essential part of maintaining and sustaining it, um, I don't think, I know that my father wouldn't have wanted this place to become a museum. And if it was a museum, I don't think it would last that long. No, Inhabiting it is essential.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that idea of living in it as maintaining it is also really nice, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, wood carries on moving and changing and living after after you've cut it and stuck it in place. And, you know, so actually helping it with that it's really great, like you say, keeping it warm or like um, treating it or
1: anything that you need mm-hmm. to do like that. JB always said, nothing's precious. And it was really important to him that the things that he made were lived with. Yes. Were touched, were were interacted with. He he did not want his work to end up uh, in a vitrine or buried deep in a, a storage warehouse. Yeah. And that's something that um, really spurred this, the the idea of opening a gallery was that I managed the permanent collection, as I mentioned before, but estates and museums rarely are able to show work from their permanent collection. Such a small percentage of collections are actually ever exhibited. Yeah. Yeah. The gallery in Point Reyes, Blunk Space is a way for me to share pieces from JB's collection on a regular basis. So we'll often organize a show of a contemporary artist or designer alongside works of JB's that that artist or designer will pick out from the permanent collection.
0: Lovely. That's really nice.
1: And so for me, that's a way of keeping the the work that he made that we're currently storing alive yeah and and uh, and truly appreciated
0: yeah yeah that kind of um storytelling as well of of um juxtaposing his artworks with contemporary or inspired by artworks it's really interesting isn't it because you start to see how people respond to it through different times and how um how it looks also in different places you know a a piece of work in a forest setting is very different to a piece of work in a gallery setting and I think those different kind of interpretations and ways of telling the stories they open it up to different people as well Mm -hmm. we touched uh earlier a little bit on curiosity and like my understanding of your father's work makes me think that he was a very curious person curious about the world and that he also cultivated that curiosity he he really sort of looked after that curiosity and pushed it um and then do you find now that do you find yourself becoming curious about it in that sort of sense? I guess like when you're looking at it and you're thinking like, you know, oh, that person's picked out this piece of work to show with their work or, you know, does it inspire different types of curiosity in you as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. And and I think I think what's the most exciting part of that and, and the, the aspect of managing this estate that continues to keep me curious is thinking about where and how I can present JB's work that will keep it relevant Mm. And we'll keep it animated and um and there's there's so many themes that I feel like JB's work uh, embodies whether it's yeah. about sustainability or um a diverse practice like the slippage between yeah. form and function or decorative and, and functional work he he, he 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 didn't adhere to the very rigid categories that I think um specifically Western art history has created categories like craft art and design for him. He was an artist and working across all of those different disciplines was just what he had to do. It was what he did. And it was a result of his curiosity, curiosity specifically for a material. uh, Whether it was clay or wood, the question always was what can I make with this? What is material capable of? I have this idea. Can I somehow manifest this idea with this material? yeah and so that that I think just inherently created a really fluid practice and so for me as the manager and our director of this place I think the question is how can we present and share JB's work in the most fluid cross-disciplinary sense yeah um, I, I've I've tried to keep a very open mind about where we exhibit the work who we collaborate with um, how this place is shared um, and and I think that's that is for me really the mission moving forward is just yeah. to keep very open minded, um, curious perspective,
0: and and sort of in in that sense when as you're going sort of forwards with it, um, I guess that's sort of scaffolding it for the future you know beyond you you know when you think about how museums view their objects and they're looking at things in a sort of you know hundred thousand a hundred or a thousand year kind of perspective mm-hmm. you know and and what happens so whoever is caring for a particular collection at a time they're they're sort of a point on the timeline of those objects you know Um, and I just wondered do you sort of do you document what you're doing? You know, do you document the the different um, people who come to work in the workshops or the way you move work around, Um, you know, and and do you you work with people like conservators as well or do you just let the work Mm -hmm. exist? We do.
1: We do work with conservators. A recent experience was we went through the ceramic archive recently and discovered that there were two pieces that were horrifically um, stained with mouse urine. (laughs) so gotcha. the, the mice the rodents in in the woods and, and in and out of the home and studio are sort of the the biggest threat to the work yeah because the mouse urine has this unbelievable potent capacity to stain yeah and so uh, I reached out to a conservator who we work with in San Francisco and took both works to him and he did a phenomenal job so that kind of restoration conservation work is something that we do uh, engage with regularly if it's needed mm. um but, you know, that's, that's for, let's say that's for ceramic work. And these two pieces were, one was more of a ceramic sculpture and the other was a bowl. Yeah. Um. But the woodwork, for example, specifically the furniture, those are pieces that we have never conserved. Yeah. Uh, also because there, there hasn't been mouse urine or other uh, surface damage like that, but yeah. the, the wood sculpture and furniture we still live with. So, the house is filled with his wood sculpture and we use his stools on a daily basis. Yeah. And so these stools will for several months be used around the kitchen table and then we'll send one of them to New York for an exhibition. Yeah. And then it yeah. will come back. So that patina is also really important. J. Yeah. He, loved he loved the way that uh, wood, as you mentioned, is still this this living um, material. So he loved watching something change over time. Yeah. And watching the surfaces develop patinas through use so I'm looking right now uh at a stool and a chair and um another stool that are in the bedroom that we live with and engage with every day
0: yeah I think that's a really um a really interesting point as well it's really it's really lovely to like live and uh use and those you know interact with those things and you know sit on a stool to eat your breakfast and that um you know, like being able to sit on a comfortable or well-made stool that, you know, someone has specifically made for a space, that's a real uh, it's a real luxury in its own way, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then it's, I imagine it's probably quite peculiar then when you hand it over to a, like an art handler to go off to a gallery <laughs> and they're all sort of, you know, wrapping it up
1: and... I know, it, it makes me smile it down every, and, time, yeah. every time. Uh, and, and not that I don't agree with that kind of care. It's just no. a different type of caring. Yeah. Very different. And and we've always moved around JB's work in a very casual way. Just yeah. the way that I've handled it as the way my father handled it. So do you have some packing blankets? Great. You yeah. throw a packing blanket in the back of the truck or the car. You put the piece in the packing blanket. You make sure it's secure. Yeah. Maybe strap it down and you're good to go. And so yeah. we've moved loads of work from to and from the gallery in the home over the years. And a photographer was recently doing a story about the gallery for the financial times, how to spend it. And he could not believe that when I drove up in my Volvo, there were two J.B. Blunk stools wrapped in packing blankets for an upcoming show. He had to take photos of it. Yeah, And I think one of those photos actually ended up in the article, which I was slightly embarrassed by, but at the yeah. same time accepted that this is the way that we, we handle his work and way yeah. he handled his work and it, um, it's uh, it's very real. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: what I was gonna say. It's very real, isn't it? <laughs> it? um I think it's I think it's also it's really nice to continue that legacy as well. Like if that's how he yeah. is comfortable with his work being handled and also he trusts the the strength of his work to be handled that way, then fine, you know,
1: chuck it in the back of a Volvo and yeah. <laughs> it's a very soft, well padded Volvo. My, yeah. My interior is sort of that velour carpet like. Yeah, post. yeah. No sharp edges, only on the yeah. outside.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never get hit by one. Um, <laughs> so that's really, really great. I guess I just had one last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and that was, is maybe um, whether it was a kind of natural decision to care for these objects in this way. You know, to sort of almost go into it as a profession and um, and how you find that kind of um stewardship because obviously it ties in with your curatorial work and um you know your your training and so on but it's it's a it's a big job right it's a big mm-hmm. job
1: that really is yeah it, it i started working with my father's material in 2007 and that was after i'd graduated from CCAC California College of the Arts and mm-hmm. Crafts which is now California College of the Arts in San Francisco where i studied architecture And during those, those five years of studying, I had become friends with lots of different types of creative people, artists, designers, painters, sculptors, architects, and uh, while in school, I would bring friends up to the house for the weekend. Yeah. And I think I I didn't really appreciate this place for what it is until I would, I was studying architecture until I was in my early 20s. And it was because I was bringing other people here, specifically artists and designers and watching the way they responded to this space and how excited they were to be here. And how inspiring it was that I began to understand, oh wait, there's actually, there's something very important about this place that needs to be shared. And there's a potential here and a potency here. And I had to step in a way out of my personal experience of Mm -hmm. being born in this house and growing up in this house to begin to really see it from a fresh perspective and my boyfriend at the time joshua minor really helped me understand that he was a furniture designer and maker and he really connected to this place and he and i talked about bringing artists here regularly and this idea slowly developed of an artist residency program um and then as i mentioned the partnership with the lucid art foundation the nonprofit mm-hmm. um, that gordon onslow ford founded in the late 90s that partnership really um cemented this project but that that very slow development of this idea and appreciation of the space um I think also it it happened simultaneously with my work as an architect and then um in 2000 what was it eight I left architecture to focus on maintaining this home and and renovating it in order to set up an artist residency but that was just a part-time job so my Mm. other job were working as an art librarian at the Oakland Museum of California in Oakland and it was while working as a librarian there that I learned about archiving so then I was able to apply my skills uh, or or understanding of archiving to my father's work and of course my work as an architect helped my understanding of how to renovate and sustain structurally so I think uh, yeah and then as my, my work as a curator also linked back to this place and enabled me to think critically about who we were inviting as artists and designers to live and work in the house and what stories we could tell in yeah. terms of their connection to this place and my father's practice. So even though I've I've worked in all sorts of different capacities within, I'd say, the the design world, it all comes back to this place. There's yeah. all it's a very clear connection uh, to to this home and my father's work. And so finally accepting or admitting that 2021 was, was actually a huge relief.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: um, And I don't feel nervous about it the way I did, um, let's say several years ago where I was afraid that by committing to managing this place that I wasn't living my own life or doing something for myself. Yeah. That I was devoting myself entirely to my father, which I know he wouldn't want me to do. Yeah. But now I understand that, um, there's a way of sharing this place and maintaining it that is also totally expansive and completely of, of my own uh, design. Yeah. So th- these ideas and the gallery and um, what will happen with this place moving forward is something that I can take credit for and, and would like to feel really um, confident about. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, I think, been a really tricky part of this. I've talked a lot about this with my mother who isn't involved in managing the place but she's always been very wary that I've been spending too much time focused on JB or, or yeah. rather too much energy just dedicating myself to his legacy but now I'd say that I've reached a place where I can say this is actually something that I've created on my own and it's yeah. the result of all of my life experiences and yeah. all of these careers that I've had uh and to me it makes sense and yeah it's totally unique and so yeah. that's that keeps me going that actually gives enormous amount of inspiration and keeps it really interesting
0: yeah I mean it's that's it's such an amazing story and that build up and layering of kind of skills in different fields and um you know very much away from the estate like on your own terms and things that you've Mm -hmm. chosen to do bringing you back there when you're ready to I mean that's the perfect point to start a sort of I guess like a formal caring for the estate rather than you know the the natural care that's there because you grew up there it's um it's almost like the, the perfect grounding for it isn't it
1: mm, yeah that's yeah. exactly right yeah
0: well, that was really really lovely thank you so much for speaking Welcome. to me today Absolutely. Um it's so interesting to hear about the various aspects of looking after a really broad selection of work and uh scales of work and so on and so forth. And we'll say that there are conservators who know what to do with mice mice pee. <laughs> there are.
1: Anything's possible. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's uh I guess that's quite reassuring um as there's so many of them. So yeah. and um, thank you so, so much for your time. You're welcome. Lovely speaking with you. Yeah, lovely to speak to you too.